Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. <laughs> I think the only time we stopped the whole race to like just sit and like not be moving and, and going as fast as we could was when we finally got to that water um, after being dry for so long. And we sat down and we were by a creek just sitting there, just chugging some water, refilling our water bottles. And then Vert comes up behind us and we looked rough. Uh, I didn't. We didn't know where they were in the course. We knew they're good enough to podium. They're good enough to beat us. And we see them strolling up behind us. Okay, you people sit tight, hold the fort, and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn, call the president. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Dark Zone Adventures and Podcasts is your host, Brian Gatens, episode number 78. For those of you following at home, it's been quite a distance between our last episode and this one. It's been a very busy September and October in my day job, a job that I love, mind you, but a busy job nonetheless. This episode has Jesse Tubb, Jesse Spangler of Team Grit Adventures. Nationals Race Director Chris Yeager joins us from Gmara. Amanda Boli, who is the third member of Good Adventures, was unable to make it to this recording, but we have an old episode of hers we're going to get out pretty soon. Fantastic stuff. The Jessies do a great job talking about their nutrition and their strategy and their health and all that goes on to be a, an eraser. They were second at national championships only to bend racing. We are delighted to have them on the show. This is a fun, fun listen. The Dark Zone is driven by all of you. We come to the event racing community free of charge. You will never pay for an episode of The Dark Zone. Never. It will not happen. Also, right around the corner, we have the Adventure Racing World Championships in South Africa. And they announced they're going to Ecuador next year. So much good stuff going on in our sport. The Dark Zone is delighted to have you as a listener. Your feedback is always, always welcome. Leave it in the comments. Reach out to me, Brian at ARDarkZone.com. Whatever you want to do, get a hold of me and we'll talk about it. I'd like to also mention the Dark Zone's charity partner, Ascend Athletics. We are proud to support their mission to empower young women through mountaineering-based leadership training and community service. All of our listeners are encouraged to visit AscendAthletics.org to learn more about Ascend and their work in helping to develop leadership and resiliency in young women in Pakistan and Afghanistan through fitness, mental health, community service, and mountaineering. Please note that Ascend pays nothing for this mention. We just love the work that they do and are happy to spread the word. Be sure to check out their website for some upcoming activities that anyone can get involved in. Welcome to the Dark Zone Adventure Racing Podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens. This is a post-national championship discussion we're having tonight. We're joined by Gmara, Green Mountain Adventure Racing Association, RD, Chris Yeager. We have Jesse Tubb and Jesse Spangler of Team Grid Adventures. Their third teammate, Amanda Boli, is unable to make it. 
She's currently overseas and it's 2.45 in the morning where she is. And that's kind of sad that as an adventure racer, she can't make it at 2.45 in the morning. But Amanda is listening from afar and we will get her episode out as soon as possible. For those of you at home, uh, USARA just had their national championship race held up in Vermont. A tremendous success. All of the feedback coming out of the race was very strong. Uh, Chris and his team did a fantastic job bringing that race. Nationals is a big lift, big race, a lot to worry about, a lot to consider, a lot of uh, different things to do, swims to add, swims to cut, all sorts of stuff like that. So we're going to begin our discussion tonight by kicking it over to Chris, who will offer us a high-level overview of the course, the teams, where it was held. Chris, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Brian. We had 62 teams start the race. I think there were 66 signed up. We had a few drop out beforehand. It took place in northwestern Vermont out of a town called Jeffersonville at a big ski resort called Smuggler's Notch. And we'll come back to that because that location actually matters. The race had nine overall stages. The team started on foot after about an hour bus ride. They had an any order section on foot where they had to get five, but there were 10 checkpoints. So you saw some teams cutting that early. They had a scenic bike past some rivers uh, and up and over a little bit of hike a bike on there with some old roads that got washed out by the flooding to make their way to paddle. Uh, for lead teams, it was about a four hour paddle. The trick was there was uh, three portages on here that totaled about two and a half kilometers worth of portage time. From there, uh, most teams got off the paddle heading into night. They then biked through a couple different um, trail networks with the varying levels of, of trail to old road to a little bit of hike a bike. They then arrived at uh, transition area four. They were greeted by pancakes and sausage and Vermont maple syrup before they headed out onto a completely off trail trek um, with some, some sketchy cliffs, um, some waterways and big boulders to scramble over for coming back getting back on their bikes and biking up and through Smuggler's Notch. They had about four kilometers of paved downhill on the far side of the notch, which was super fun to do at 3 a.m. when they're tired and sleep deprived. It was great. They then came into a trekking section where they were given three maps that they didn't get ahead of time and they could split up. So you saw different teams take different strategies to get out and get those three sections. From there, if they made the cutoff and they wanted to, they continued on the full course. They had uh, some optional points through a local mountain biking network. The final two or two of the most technical, uh, nicest trails on the course. And then they hit it into the capstone of the event, which, uh, you know, for the lead teams took more than six hours. It was a, an entirely off trail trek up and over a big ridge to finish on foot back at Smuggler's Notch Resort. Want to mention that the winners of the show championships were Bend Racing. Uh, Bend has had a fantastic, fantastic season. Congratulations to Ben. We want to get them on the show as soon as we can. Tonight, Jesse Tubb and Jesse Spangler are two members of Team Grit Adventures. They were second place, second place in nationals. Jesse Tubb, I'm going to go to you first. I want you to talk a bit about, first off, what is Grit named after? I know you're very proud of the origins of your team name. I'd like to tell you the world a bit about that, and then we'll talk a bit about the race. Go ahead, Jesse. Yeah, I started a program during the pandemic called Grit Adventures. Um, that uses adventure racing as a vehicle for teaching kids mental resiliency skills. Um, and I, it was created as a direct result of what I saw my kids and their friends go through um, with all the mental health issues they were struggling with during the pandemic. And um, yeah, so that was the, the impetus for the, for the name. And GRIT stands for Generating Resilience, Independence, and Tenacity. Um, and so that's where the name came from. 
Excellent. And I'm, I'm, uh, I will put a copy of your uh, website link in the show notes when we get this up on, when we post this episode. So Grit Adventures had a fantastic race, an adventure-filled race, dare I say. Jesse Spangler, overall, how do you feel during the race? Well, great. Um, we weren't, to, we wanted to win. Uh, we didn't know if we'd crack the top three. So being in second place for uh, a lot of the race was um, motivating. Uh, seeing Bend and many of the transition areas at the beginning of the race or first half of the race was also motivating. Uh, we felt good. Now, did you know, you know, adventure racing is, is a funny sport in the idea that we don't post leaderboards, for example, in the TA. So you really don't know where you fall in relation to the overall race. Clearly, you knew you were at the point at the end of the race. Clearly, you knew you were doing well. Um, did you have a sense of that during the race or were you sort of, did you not know how much you were being chased, how far ahead Bend was? You know, the big thing with adventure racing is you race your own race, right? You, you don't get too involved in what other teams are doing. But how did the chase Cerebrus being chased, how did that impact your team dynamic during the race? Uh, I think it, it just, it was exciting to see that we were up there with the with the top few teams. The way the course is laid out, uh, there were a couple areas where we could see, you know, where the, where the first bikes that arrive in an area or where the first boats that arrive, like after the boating section, we saw Bend um, on their bikes. So we knew and we timed where they were. And then we timed where we were when we got there and we were 15 minutes behind them at that point. So it didn't change what we did. We were always trying our hardest to get to the finish line as fast as possible, but it's just exciting. And then we look behind us and, and Vert's right there. So we knew, you know, we had a shot at the win at the national championship, which is motivating. If we were in 10th place, we would have tried just as hard, but it made it exciting. Yeah, and, and that's an at interesting. The, uh, at the, uh, the last time we saw Ben was at that O relay. And that was at night. I don't remember how late it was. Maybe it was like midnight or something like that. Um, but we rolled in there and saw Max King had been done with his section of the O relay as we got our maps and headed out on ours. So we knew we were we were still within striking distance at that point. Yeah, Max King, one of the fastest humans alive, was probably sitting there with his shoes off his feet up taking a nap while his two teammates are out there. Exactly. Yeah, he never looks the least bit stressed. Chris, coming back to you real quickly, Nationals was a 30-hour race, correct? That's correct. 30 hours. And what was the start time? Start time was billed at 9 a.m. We actually started at 8.45 a.m. All the pre-race logistics went so smoothly. So technically, teams had 30 hours and 15 minutes before they would have started getting penalties. Excellent. Uh, maximizing their entry fee. Very nice. Like extra innings in baseball. Free, free adventure racing. Extra 15 minutes. Sure. So that 30 hours took them, obviously, through one complete night and obviously into part of the second day. Jesse Spangler, uh, what is your uh, dynamic? In fact, I'm going to go, I'll edit this. Jesse Tubb, um, the dynamic of you racing with the other Jesse and racing with Amanda, was this your first time racing together? Have you raced together in the past? How did the team dynamic work out? Jesse and I raced um, together a few times over the last couple of years, and um, I didn't really know um, too much about Amanda. We and the three of us had never worked together. Um, and we had a few calls beforehand to get to know each other. And I met Amanda at Endless Mountains. And it was pretty instantaneous chemistry or connection. It was, she was easy to talk to and easy to get along with. And um, so, yeah, every, everything flowed really well in the pre-race pre chats and communication. And so I was really confident that you would translate it well into the race situation. Yeah, and, and knowing that the three of you individually, I could see that being an easy dynamic, you racing very, very well together. 
not that there were you know no one has a, a, a completely smooth race right but overall the race for your team appeared to go really well what stressors did you pick up on how did your feet hold together your stomachs the sleep the terrain where did it get difficult for you guys was it the speed of trying to keep up with ben like walk us through that a little bit where was it tough jesse spangler the toughest part of the race for us was on the last trek um we made an error um it was mostly my fault uh, i navigated the foot and paddle tub did the bike and we were going up on these the most difficult points of the race and i didn't realize we wouldn't see water for probably three hours um there was kind of water everywhere on the course, so we didn't even think about it. Um, we always just carried chest bottles, and we would just fill them up in the streams and filter our water as we went. Um, but for this part, there was no water, and it was the hardest section of the race. It was the steepest climbing. It was the toughest climbing. And it was the, the beginning of the second morning as the sun was rising, and we get to the top of the mountain, and we realize after about an hour into this three-hour section – um, we were pretty much out of water and we were pushing hard. We'd just gone up this mountain as fast as we could. We think we're in striking distance of bend. And so we got pretty dehydrated there and that, that made it so we couldn't really eat very well. I think that slowed us our pace down quite a bit. Um, I think our pace, the rest of the race was pr pretty close to bends. We made more nav errors than them. Um, but then we slowed down probably the last three hours of the race, mainly because we were dry we got behind on calories because we didn't have any water and i think the only time we stopped the whole race to like just sit and like not be moving and, and going as fast as we could was when we finally got to that water um after being dry for so long and we sat down and we were by a creek just sitting there just chugging some water refilling our water bottles and then vert comes up behind us and we looked rough uh i didn't we didn't know where they were in the course. We knew they're good enough to podium. They're good enough to beat us. And we see them strolling up behind us. Uh, so we thought maybe they, I don't think they'd cleared the course um, through there, but that got us moving a little bit as soon as we saw them. It's interesting that the most challenging factor was an external factor, right? It was the thing that you, you, you can control to some extent. You can always bring extra water, but any race is really a gamble, right? You think about how much do I have to carry? How much is out there? And a common miscalculation like that is is not an uncommon thing to happen in, in a race. And so to your point, and obviously seeing Vert at that point in the race was a bit of a jolt to you, knowing that, you know, here you are so far into the race, close near, near the finish and the team shows up. And you didn't know at that point that Vert had left some checkpoints behind. You didn't know where they were in terms of clearing the course. Jesse Tubb, when you, when you consider the race itself and you look at it, what section of the race do you think that you personally Felt, felt yourself to be the most strong? Was it earlier in the race, in the middle, towards the end? Was it a certain type of, of discipline? What do you like the most during a race? Uh, probably the biking. The The benefit of racing with Jesse Spangler is that he is like a little nymph, a little fairy nymph in the, in the woods. He is so fast on foot and he is, so he, he'll have the map and he can go up ahead a little bit and stop and look at the map and while the rest of us catch up, and my strong point is generally on the bike. And so I was able to tow um, and, and do extra work on the bike. Um, and so I, I feel like that's why Jesse and I work so well together. Um, so there's a couple of long climbs where I was able to, to put Amanda on tow and get the team moving faster. And um, I, I think, you know, with any team dynamic, 
when you feel like you're you're being useful and you feel like your skills or your strengths are being utilized it, it sort of energizes you so obviously it was tiring but it also felt energizing to be able to to know that i was helping the team move faster in those sections because uh, there was some pretty long climbs um that uh that was definitely sucking some uh some energy out of the team yeah there's definitely two things that you talk about well first thing sorry vermont is not flat I, I took a little ride in vermont a couple weekends ago and i could completely agree that vermont is there's not an ounce of flat terrain there and I, and I really like how you brought up, and this is good for the team dynamic for the for the person who's newer to adventure racing listening at home, is that you you were humble enough to recognize what you were strong at, what you weren't strong at, and then you were taking uh, happiness, joy, satisfaction out of the fact that your strength was helping the team at that point. I, I think that's a really good point that you weren't fighting against your own nature. You recognize what you could or couldn't do, and you leaned into that. And then that was able to, you know, having Amanda on tow, carrying some extra gear, making your way up the hill, where your teammate, Jesse, who was, and I'm assuming we were, were you lead navigator, Jesse? Uh, like I said, I did foot and paddle, tub did bike. We Got didn't it. really, um, yeah, we didn't switch off like, in, in between legs. But tub is an absolute beast on bike. And yes. so, like, one section, he was towing uh, Amanda, but then I would try to get in front, like, it was like rolling hills. So then I would try to pull from the front while Tub was behind me. And it would almost, it wouldn't turn into a race, but it's hard to work together like that because on the uphills, you know, I kind of pull away on the downhills and trying to not let Tub catch me because he's towing somebody. And then I'm trying not to let him catch me. So it's not, doesn't, it almost turns into a race there. Um, So we pushed each other pretty hard there for a little bit. That was fun. In terms of national championships you've raced before, Jesse Tub, how many have you raced previously? This is my third. Your third? What were the other two? Uh, 2018 with Rootstock, uh, where we won that one. And then uh, it was two years ago, I think, um, Jesse and I raced with Caitlin out in uh, Wisconsin. Yep, yep. That was one of the uh, – the Wisconsin Nationals was, was happened just before. Uh, that was the birth of the dark zone. Came just after those Wisconsin Nationals. One of our first guests was Wadali. How about you, Jesse Spangler? How about your racing? Uh, this was my fourth nationals. I did, I think, 2016. I did another one after that. I did the other one with in Wisconsin with Jesse Tubb. And then uh, this was my best result. Well, my teammates had both podiumed at nationals before. I'd never achieved that. Uh, so it was nice to to do that. Good, Amanda good. got second last year mm-hmm. with Bend. Um, and Jesse had been the national champion before. Well, the, the Amanda Ben story is a great one. And, and if I ever, I interviewed her almost, well, almost a year ago. And I, I really should release that episode that Amanda was a, 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 a last minute addition that someone on Ben, I believe had gotten injured and they reached into the phone book and they called Amanda and she joined Ben on very, very short notice and had a fantastic race. I remember seeing her last year at Rootstock Racing to Stockville. She looked fresh as a daisy on the course. There are some people who are in a race and you two are the same way. Well, not as much you, you tubs, but Spangler, yes, that you look fresh as a daisy during the race, that you look up and they look fantastic. And other those of us look like we got destroyed during the race. Tub, how did your feet hold together this race? I know you had a tough go of it up at Endless Mountains. Uh, the feet were fine. It was my knee that was the biggest issue. Um, so Jesse and I drove up together and uh, I got a call from... This is ridiculous. <laughs> I got, I got a call uh, with my MRI results on my knee um, and uh, turns out I had a partially torn meniscus and 
my physical therapist recommended that I not do any prolonged running activities. You got to tell the whole because- story here. You're on the speakerphone in my car. Me and Tub drove up together. Tub's in D.C. I'm in Richmond. And so we're in the car together. But halfway there, his somebody calls on the speakerphone and said that he tore a ligament in his knee and that he shouldn't do any activity. And I just look over and I'm like, dude, what? Well, so the good thing about racing with a doctor is I was able to get a second opinion. And, and luckily, Dr. Spangler's recommendation was to race. And so I took that opinion over my physical therapist opinion um my yeah so my feet were fine my my knee after the first trek halfway through the first trek my knee uh started um aching pretty hard um and then we were on bike and it felt okay on the bike and then the paddle felt good and the two portages were pretty brutal on my knee and you can see there's video footage um where we were portaging and and i was limping pretty hard and during the second paddle section i i just i told the team i was like look i'm just giving you a heads up that depending on how my knee feels on our next trek uh i don't know that i can finish it was good to know that there was you know what the protocol was of of sort of preemptively treating it and and monitoring throughout the race and luckily i think having the bike paddle bike helped my knee relax a little bit and then ibuprofen numbed it up enough that i was able to finish it out um but it's Definitely not uh, happy that I did my did the race at this point. It's, I'm still triaging. Yeah, it, after but. that, at the end of the first trek, Jesse was hobbling, and I, I don't know, he was moving pretty slow, and I didn't know if he was going to make it to the end of the race. But luckily, we had a long section on the first day where he was off of his feet. Was it just when you were when you were uh, you're trekking, Jesse, or was it also when you were when you're cycling? Uh, it hurt a little bit cycling, but um, it was definitely the trekking, and then especially because. Um, Craig designed a course that was like 98% off trail. Um, there was just a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, really nasty, um, uh, going up and down, um, some of the hills where there's a lot of rocks and uneven footing. And so I, during the second long trek, I took two poles with me to help uh, mitigate the the pain. And I actually, I think made it worse only because then you had to think about four points of contact versus just two. Um, so I was moving pretty slow in that second trek. Um, and yeah. The pull last... slowed you down so yeah. much. I'm, I'm looking at, we'll come back to the last track in a second, but I'm, I'm looking into the, my crystal ball here and there's some adventure racers in the car with her husband who's playing this episode. I mean, she's telling her husband how safe the sport is, how much fun it is <laughs> while you're recounting the fact that you're, meniscus is falling out the back of your knee and you have two trekking poles and the doctor you're with had good drugs and you sort of ignored all of medical advice and then she's telling her husband that it's a completely safe sport and he shouldn't worry a bit about it so uh well yeah the irony is my wife is sitting right next to me in the car um rolling her eyes (laughs) stupidity yeah but it was we're we're gonna we're gonna do an episode down the road but the the spouses of adventure racers that will be a a, 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 so tell her she's welcome to come on the show whenever she wants um let her know but i interrupt you about the last trek you were saying Oh, just the last trek. I, I did not bring the poles and it ended up being better because um, I was able to just focus mainly on where my r- right foot was landing. And and uh, again, just focus on that point of contact versus having the, the poles to distract me. And, and the knee was was mostly um, pain free during the last couple of treks. And so it was able to I was able to keep up better. Yeah. And the other part of it, too, is you, be, you begin to sniff the barn, right? You know that the, the the pain ends when you get finished. And so it's more about focusing on the finish than focusing on the current event. It's every step gets you closer to getting off your feet. Yeah. Right? So psychologically, and, and I, it takes over. 
I'm really careful to, to monitor, you know, there's two different types of pain. There's one that will, like you said, stop when you finish racing. Um, and there's other pain that is causing serious damage. And I was really careful about monitoring the type of pain that I was feeling um, to make sure that wasn't, you know, hopefully causing long-term Got it. Uh, Got it. Damage. Got it. And if I if I know correctly, I think you gave up your spot next weekend for the Wilderness Challenge, right? Eastern Mount Wilderness yep. Challenge. Yeah, yeah, my knee's just not where it needs to be. Gotcha. To do something like that. And and for for, the, for those that are out there, uh, I just want to give a plug for Eric Caravella's Eastern Mountain Wilderness Challenge. Eric is a friend of the podcast. It is a uh, Adirondacks in Wanakini, New York. It is a uh, the 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 Citizens Division is thirty hours and roughly four checkpoints. The Pro Division is 34 hours and four checkpoints. Um, very, very, very remote course. Um, I think Eric has said something I'll paraphrase is that uh, rescue will be difficult, if not impossible, that you are your own rescue team. Um, I share all of this because I'm racing the Pro Division, so this might be the last episode of the Dark Zone. If so, <laughs> you guys can have all of my podcasting gear. Um, Chris, coming back to you a little bit, uh, clearly 60 plus teams, 62 showed up at the, at the start line. Uh, a very, very well-regarded nationals, uh, all the uh, all the conversation around it. You know, the internet does not um, hesitate for, for raining fire down on things they're not happy about. Um, I struggled to find any negative uh, discussion about the uh, nationals. In fact, I can't find any, so not even really struggling. Talk to us a bit about what you thought, how you thought the race was going to go and how it went and what it was like for you to, to, to carry the mantle, the pressure of being a director of the national championship. Yeah, happy to. It it there was definitely pressure. I I knew out of the 10 top teams in the US, at least 8 of them were going to show up, as well as some teams that maybe had only ever once done an overnight race. And I've always prided myself on providing an experience that handles the extremes of teams you see. Part of it was also really figuring out how fast will these teams move. Uh, I knew there was a ton of elevation, perhaps the most in the nationals ever, and a lot of ground to cover. They weren't really moving on trails, so those miles were were hard earned with, with only a few notable exceptions, just a few miles that were like flat paved or a touch of trail in one spot. And I was really pleased. I think like most race, race directors are when teams clear the first couple stages and you realize, OK, this is proceeding according to what we thought. And it, it took a little longer than I thought, because actually the first stage went about 30% quicker than we thought it would. We have a, we had a detailed spreadsheet with all the time estimates and the lead few teams come out really fast. And I realized in hindsight, when we did that initial time estimate, we had gone in two weeks before there had been a bunch of rain. It was wetter, it was sloppier. And so I hadn't factored that in quite accurately, but I'm really pleased with the fact that we gave every team a full challenge. Uh, no team finished in under 27 hours, which is pretty great. But three teams did finish the full course. It was doable. It was achievable. Uh, so every team had every bit as much race as they could handle as they wanted. And so that was pretty great. And um, I've enjoyed hearing hearing the feedback coming as we've gone. You know, I've heard from uh, some teams, but certainly not a lot. So it's great that you've also scoured the Internet and validated there aren't a ton of haters out there, which is which feels good. If the uh, the national is an interesting dynamic, right? And, and credit goes to Michael Garrison, USAA, the executive director. He had this uh, rolling, if you will, um, application process, registration process for nationals, where it was opened up to teams with higher, higher, higher rankings. And over time, sixty six teams ended up getting in. 
And it's very, very difficult to, to put a course together that is accessible for so many people without, you know, you don't want to blow teams off the, off the course, but you also want to honor the challenge of, the, of, of those higher teams, right? And to your credit, three teams clearing the course out of 66 and 27 hours being the time on the course out of 30 hours. It sounds like you nailed that pretty well. If you were to go back and if you were to change a part of the course, if you were to reevaluate something, a decision that you made, what would you have, what would you reevaluate? My, my biggest regret on the course um, actually had to do with dropping the swim. And in, in hindsight, uh, what folks don't know is we actually had to rework the first quarter of the course several different times. There was some flooding in Vermont about two months before the race. Um, entire roads to the start of the race were shut down. We couldn't get in there for a couple of weeks. And I really wanted people to have that swim experience. Um, the other thing the flooding did is it took some of the trails that would have been a little more fun to ride and made them into a little bit less fun to ride. So that was a regret. And I do think from a, from a, I'm really happy with where the course landed. I think there's probably one checkpoint that I would tweak from being a mandatory point to an optional point based on the final state of those trails. And we, it was the last decision point the day we were printing the, the rules of travel. And I was chatting with Jim Christensen, my awesome course co-designer. I know I'm the one here talking. He did every bit as much as I did to make this course happen. And we, we almost called that audible, but it was just so close to the wire. We said, you know what? It works. We're not going to make a last minute change in a hurry and then regret it. And that's probably the one tweak I'd make. But overall, between the fact we had good weather, great teams, and no, no bad surprises, no major injuries, uh, no calling the ambulance. Pretty pleased with how things went in general. I'm looking at the course description now, and I'm, I'm curious what the Jesses want to say about this. Am I correct that you had a, you passed basically right past the finish line before going back around the course? It sounds like when you came off the paddle, you were then on the bike, and that took you somewhat near Smuggler's Notch, and it was pretty much close to the finish line, and you had to keep traveling. Is it, Am I reading the, the map correctly? Yeah, we got a little uh, extra tour of that area on a little bike detour. Um, but yeah, we were close to the finish on the second afternoon, evening. And had that, first feel, afternoon had that feel knowing that like it was the, you were you were in the midst of it, you were racing hard and oh, here's the finish line, but we got to keep going. Did that mess with your head at all? There, there was a point on the course um, uh, where Tub, Tub's the voice of reason sometimes. I never want to drop any points. And it was on the last track where Tub said you know, we need to start thinking about possibly dropping a point. <laughs> and, uh, I said, absolutely no effing way. <laughs> Are we dropping a point right now? Um, but it, we did have to think about that. I know three, three teams cleared it, but uh, we didn't know how we'd, how we'd do towards the end of that, that track. Well, to that point, there's a bit of a razor's edge there. I'm looking at your results here. You cleared the course at 55 points. You went 28-57. Right. So you were yep. only an hour and three minutes in the bank before you went over 30 hours. So clearly that had to be part of the decision. What point was that? Where were you considering dropping a point? What was the reason why? Was it the train to it? Was it travel? Was it the difficulty finding it? It was the first couple of checkpoints uh, on that last trek. Um, we chose to go counterclockwise. And the first, uh, I don't know, a few checkpoints took us a long time to get. And there were, I don't know, 16 checkpoints on that last whole section. And just looking at the time and, and looking at how long it was taking us to knock out some of these checkpoints, um, I just, you know, was doing, doing the mental calculus and I just wanted to at least have the conversation well before we got to the second half of that trek. Um, so that we, because again, the way we were routing our, um, that second half had us kind of looping 
to the far northwest and then back. Um, so that would have changed the, our strategy. So I just wanted to at least have the conversation before it got to the 11th hour. And to your point, I'm looking at your tracker right now, and I know the folks at home can't follow along, but you can obviously tell that that one point, if I'm correct, I think it was that point was pretty far out there to the west, and you run the risk of getting marooned out there and having to make it back and then burning through all that time. So I see the, the I see what you're talking about there as being a, a challenging decision that you had to make at that point. Yeah, it was a slow start to that last trek. You went on the, to, to the two toughest points of this race that, that were really out of the way and messed up your route planning strategy. Um, and the terrain was pretty slow. Like we were climbing up these little rocky cliff faces on a spur. You could go kind of through the woods and then you get into these thick pines. But we just kind of scrambled straight up the rocks on the spur to go um, on these two difficult points. Um, and it was sketchy and slow. And so if the entire rest of the train was like those two points, we probably wouldn't have finished in time. So the good news is that the course leveled out enough that you could pick up your speed and everybody's body held together long enough and you had that hour there. Um, so so for Jesse Spangler, I you know, Jesse Tubb mentioned that his knee, what was a challenge for him? How did your body hold together? Uh, I think it was fine. I don't think there are any issues. What do you find traditionally? What what is what what do you usually struggle with during a race? Is it your stomach? Is it your feet? Like what really? What 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 is, for any challenges that you may have, as small as they may be? What do you find that be a challenge? Uh, in expedition racing, sometimes it's my feet. I had to take a good amount of foot breaks at Pharaoh this year on one of the long treks. I think I saw you. I was sitting down on a, a mountain when it started to rain. Yeah, over there. It only um, rained like nineteen times. You know, so for, clearly we passed each other. For thirty-hour races, I think it was. My stomach sometimes gives out. That's usually when it's the heat. And in this case, it was the dehydration. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, you were saying earlier when you're running, run out of water, and then it's tough to put food down when you have no liquid in you. So you had to get caught up with that. That was the part of it there. What do you what do you usually eat during a race? What's your, what's your go? Are you a real food guy? Are you a bar guy? <laughs> Are you a Snickers uh, bar guy? <laughs> Snickers bars. Um, yeah, I was a little burnt out of those. I brought 58 fun-sized Snickers bars to Pharaoh. Um, as part of my nutrition plan, that really backfired. <laughs> I want to um, I want to pause there really. Time out. Let's pause really limit. quickly for the folks at home. You you brought fifty eight fun size Snickers bars to Farrow Islands as part of your nutrition strategy. Yeah, I was counting them as we went, and I was a little worried I'd run out because I think I made it through twelve or thirteen on the first leg. Um, so I didn't really space it out very well. Um, but by the halfway through the race, I was done with Snickers bars. No more. Do you have like one of those yeah. like aversions to them now? Like you can't even look at them. Oh no! I I brought maybe twenty of them to, to nationals. Back up. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get a phone call from Snickers Incorporated. They're gonna want to sponsor the team for next year. After that'd the, be great the, if the, we were Team Snickers. Uh, I'd the, love it. <laughs> after the, 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 the mighty quick. the mighty media empire of the dark zone gets word out that Snickers is huge, they'll be bigger yeah. than big. Cliff bars. Forget those guys. Spring energy. Send in the Snickers. <laughs> so so Jesse Tubb, what's your, what's your what's your go to food? Are you a are you a Snickers guy? Are you a sandwich guy? We, uh, so Jesse and I both uh, are, I don't know if it's in the closet or not, but we love like Burger King and McDonald's and we went to McDonald's before the race. And the great thing about McDonald's burgers is they will last forever in your pack. Um, and so we, we each carried a couple of cheeseburgers with oh, us on the race. Oh, that's good. And, uh, mm. Yeah. And, and it, it is, it is a, a nice to have um, some comfort food uh, when you're, you're mentally going through some stuff. Um, but I, I, I used to make my own food. I used to, I got the, the feed, feed zone portables and I used to try to be healthier and, and I just, 
have given up on that. So it's peanut M&Ms and packaged goods. And I, actually, one of my go-to foods now is I get the Hawaiian sliders and I put pre-cooked bacon and cheese in those. Um, and those are amazing. Um, heavily processed and delicious. Yeah, and the good news there is that they don't really uh, – with the, the way that our metabolisms work, they don't stick around that long, right? We burn through them pretty right. quickly, so we can get away with it. When I was in Scotland racing uh, uh, Itera in 2019, we uh, were in Inverness, and I the morning of the race, the day before, I, I went down to the local McDonald's, and I tried to order 35 cheeseburgers through the automatic <laughs> kiosk because um, they had like, you know, there's no humans anymore, right? So I'm hitting 35, and the machine wouldn't work, and the manager had to come talk to me. And we took the 35 cheeseburgers, Jim Mern and I took these in the race and they, they sat in our bins for three, four, five days and they were completely fine. Um, I don't know what that says about McDonald's, what that says about race food. I do remember that, of course, we were one of the few American teams. And of course, we're buying 35 McDonald's cheeseburgers. There's a whole cultural comment to be made there. Um, but you're spot on about that. The idea of, of that kind of food just lasts forever. So, so, so good for that. Yeah, the, uh, you know, the expedition racing food is way different than yes. you know, a one day food. I don't think about it much for a 24 to 30 hour race, but for a five day race, it's a huge part of the race. Yes. Um, so th there is a difference there. And also, there's also the part during the race. I don't know if you had a chance to do it when you were in Farrow, but like actually stopping at a, at a, at a cafe or a diner or something along the way and actually getting a real meal in you, depending how fast 15, you are in the race. I think we had 15 gas station hot dogs each at that race. Yeah, that was good old TA3, <laughs> TA3 in the yep. Faroe Islands. I think we passed by that gas station nine times during the race. Yep. Um, it was a, it was a, it was simultaneously a, the world's greatest restaurant as well as a field hospital, as well as a dormitory <laughs> for a lot of us. There's a picture of a Abby, Abby Perkins of Rootstock Racing sleeping in a booth with a hot dog in her hand. Um, but hey, that that's expedition adventure racing. Chris, were there any food sponsors for the race this time? And are you going to get Snickers for next time? Yeah, <laughs> I think we should look into Snickers, particularly if this uh, team can hook me up with a deal. It sounds like they they buy enough already. Uh, <laughs> we had no specific food sponsors, but we did do our own surprise. I mentioned before the racers came into a TA. We did have uh, Vermont maple syrup there. We had uh, volunteers cooking up pancakes. We had sausage. And that was a nice little surprise for folks. That's not unlike the um, last time there was Untamed New England, they had Pancake Paradise, where the, the Boy Scouts were making pancakes and we were we were gobbling them down. Um, sometimes I wonder, is this a, a race about a podcast about adventure racing where we talk about food or is this a food podcast where we talk about adventure racing? I don't know which it is sometimes. Um, Jesse, looking back on, on the, on the race, obviously coming in second and doing so well, you're, you're really pleased with your performance. What does your, your training look like to perform at a level like this? How many hours a week are you putting in? How much base do you have? What's, what's your life like that lets you go and do something like this? Mine's pretty simple. I just do something every day. I average most of the year, eight to 10 hours a week, total of bike run. So I'm usually either running or biking for an hour to an hour and a half a day. Sometimes I do a little bit longer, but it's usually just an easy run or easy bike every day. Yeah. And that's pretty much what I do. I've had to incorporate a lot of weight training as I've gotten older to do injury prevention, which obviously didn't help my knee. But, um, what I, I, I have toyed with power meters and trying to get real um, geeked out on the data and that has never really worked for me so what I've found has been really helpful is I just find people who are faster than me and I try to keep up so I, I do group rides or runs with people who who push me um, and and that is that's how I've 
maintain my motivation. You're, you're spot on there. The idea that, and, and Brad Stolberg, who's a writer and he writes all about psychology and sports. He's really very, very strong. Him and uh, his partner, Andrew, they talk a lot about this. And he always says that, that it's about, it's about consistency over time. It's about getting yourself out there every single day as best as you can to get in what you can. And I have to tell you, once again, I don't I haven't seen the data on this. There aren't many people who are adventure racers who only adventure race, right? They have full and rich lives. They're, 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 they're doctors. They're in the military. Like I know that you recently retired, uh, Jesse, uh, Jesse Tubb from the military. Like there's a like there are a lot of citizen racers out there that do really well who don't necessarily put up 25, 30 hour weeks, eight to 10 hours balancing their life, watching the nutrition, things like that. Chris Yeager, what's been your experience with that? What's your training been like over the years? Oh, my goodness. My training several years ago was much better. I'm, uh, I'm recovering from ACL repair surgery currently. So it actually was not a bad year to plan nationals because I wasn't going to be doing a lot of racing myself. But yes, yeah, honestly, it's one of the, the reasons I got into the sport is because everything else gets monotonous for me after a while. I needed a sport where, hey, today I want to run. Hey, tomorrow I want to bike. Hey, tomorrow I want to be in the water. And that, to me, is one of the primary appeals, along with navigation and teamwork, that makes the sport what it is. And so I, I completely agree. Get out there, do something, be regular, and you'll be better for it. A, a game changer lately is before big races like nationals, or when I'm going to be navigating, is uh, instead of like uh, fine-tuning my physical preparedness, um, I spend weeks beforehand um, where I do something navigation-related every single day. So I didn't do a lot of, it took almost the whole summer off racing. I did Faro, but I didn't navigate in Faro. Tim, Tim did all the navigation for that race. So I hadn't navigated in months. Um, so before big races, every day I do something with a map. I do something navigation related, whether it's just going out on my run with a map I printed on Caltapo or going on the local trails. And then uh, for this race, I used um, uh, that app that uh, Bend Racing put together I can't think of it right now. Orienteer.co. Yeah, I, I went out and used that a couple times beforehand, but that has really improved the consistency of my navigation um, more than almost, I don't know, that's really helped my times and races. That's solid advice there, Jess. Talk a bit more about how you use Orienteer.co. I went on CalTapo and I have a, a map layer of uh, that I like to use for one of the nearby state parks. And I went to the area and I just went on there and I maybe made 20 different checkpoints on Caltapo, just click and I put a marker there. And I did that on Caltapo. And then when you're using Caltapo, you can export those into the correct format to import that into the orienteering.co app. Um, so it just takes those points that you plotted in Caltapo and it puts those into the app. And then you print the map that you just had on your screen in whatever format you want with your points on there and you can start the app. And if you don't have cell service, you have to start the app before you leave home. And then it like, I don't know, somehow gets the app ready. And then when you show up, you just put the phone in your pocket and it dings when you're at the right point. So it's really difficult. Um, so you have to set up the points, like kind of distinct points. Like, cause in, in reality, in rea real life, I might be navigating in a Creek and I'll just know I'll see it as I'm ascending up a Creek where you, with the orienteering.co app, you, have to make sure you're within like a certain radius of it. You can set the radius to like 20 meters, 50 meters. Um, so you got to put it on like hilltop or in a reentrant or somewhere kind of distinct. And if you don't do that, you better really pay attention. Um, but I did that a couple times before the race, both on bike and on foot. Physical component is one thing, but the mental component is another. 
the idea yeah. you have to stay sharpened on the maps and in a race that is as short as nationals it's only 30 hours and i know that sounds weird to say 30 hours is a short race every single second counts right and if you if you have a major nav bobble during the race and if you're at the pointy end that could cost you a spot or two in the race or it could cost you a checkpoint which takes you off clearing the course did you did you have any major major navigational challenges during the race any point where you were looking at the map not knowing where you were or were you pretty much on nav the entire time uh we had we had some little bobbles each um the first the, the biggest bobble i had was on the the first trek section and uh i've been navigating with tub for a few years now and uh um, i've made some pretty big mess ups before i think i got us lost for eight hours in fiji um so as soon as I got us lost for like 10 minutes, I, it was a difficult, difficult point. I just immediately thought, I'm not doing this again. Like, this is not happening again. The tub was nice about it. Like, nobody said anything negative. Like, I just messed up on like the fourth point of the race and cost us 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but I was pretty good and for the rest of the race until the last leg. There were a couple little points. And I'll, I'll just add on to that because I'm glad we are talking about this because I was going to bring it up that. You know, I've been racing against and with Spangler for a, a lot of years now. And in there's, you know, and like he pointed out a couple of years ago, um, there would be, you know, one or two mistakes that would cost an hour or more per race. <clears throat> and because of the work he's done navigationally um, outside of racing, that doesn't happen anymore. And that is a huge, it's like physically, he's not any faster. Um, uh, maybe he's, you know, a little bit, but the biggest game changer for um, cutting down speed you know, was the work that he's done navigationally. And, and when he is, especially when he's on, on foot on some really difficult orienteering sections, I mean, the, the data points he uses are amazing. Like the altitude, he's, he's very meticulous about checking a lot of different data points while navigating. And most of the navigation mess ups were, um, were on the bike stuff and it was, it was fairly minor stuff, but it was 10 minutes here, you know, five minutes here, eight minutes here. And those all added up. And that's something that I would, that I needed to do for, you know, I, I'm taking a lesson from Spangler's playbook that before the next race, I need to be doing that kind of work ahead of time so that I'm not, I'm not making those small mistakes. We lost at least, I think I added it up at least 45 minutes of time for just small bobbles that I made. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to acknowledge that the work that he's doing is paying off huge dividends. And and to bring that back a bit full circle, if Jesse was a was a Jesse Spangler was a guest on episode number forty nine of the Dark Zone. Tub, you were twenty seven, and Chris, you were sixty nine. Jesse, I remember distinctly when I interviewed you for episode number forty nine, um, which by the way was just before Nathan Favi's number fifty. So people should listen <laughs> to that one also. Uh, that's a popular episode up there with yours. Um, I remember you talking about during that interview how the fact that you could travel quickly over distances was actually a liability because you were you would say to yourself, well, I'll just fix my error because I can go so quickly I can make my I can make it better. And that caught up to you in some races. And so to your credit, focusing on your navigation clearly paid off. And I'm looking at the track now for that bobble. And and literally it was the race started at, at quarter of, as Chris had pointed out, and your bobble came a half an hour later at 915. So mm-hmm. literally you're half an hour into the race and then you you punch that one checkpoint and then you veered off to the west and you came back. It looks like you caught it pretty quickly, but 
I could see the spot here where you made that mistake. And by the way, other teams made the mistake there also. I looked at the map, but but that, that was a tricky part it. because uh, I knew that I didn't know where I was. Like I knew that things weren't really matching up. But um, whenever you're at like a water feature on the map, sometimes it doesn't always exactly match what you're seeing, especially if there's floods recently. Like there might be a bigger marsh than is actually listed on the map, or there might be more streams there than are actually on the map. And I mean, I should have known going into it. They just had a bunch of floods. Things might not match the same, and I need to be more more meticulous here. That was a a tough little section. And to your credit, you can, I can tell exactly what happened here was that you 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 went off to the west there. You went around a water feature, went to the west, and you if if this map is if the satellite map is correct, it looks like you came apart onto another water feature that clearly you knew where you were on the map, and then you immediately made almost a, a reverse and then went in the proper direction. So good on you for being on the maps. Um, and so clearly the navigation paid off and you recovered very quickly, but early in the race, I don't know about you guys, but I, I find that myself and my teammates getting those first few checkpoints is really hard. You just got to get yourself into a groove and after you get into a groove, you're fine. But it's like when you first get the map in your hands, you forget how maps work. <laughs> I always like to get to the first checkpoint before anybody else. That's always important to me. That's your goal. And you, you want to <laughs> <my> win. <laughs> yeah. First checkpoints, the, that's the most important one. We're going to get to it. After that, you're good to go, right? After that, yeah. everything's fine. Look at looking back, and obviously, you know, you know, being number two is, is, is in the nationals is, is is quite the the accomplishment, quite the honor. And we talked a bit about what you wish you had done differently. Right? We've mentioned that. What are your aspirations for the future? What do you want to? Now that you've you've been on, you've been dancing around the podium, and you've both had su- succeed. You've had big races. You mentioned Fiji. You mentioned Pharaoh. What is your what, what is your horizon? What do you want to do going forward with it? You want to just keep on racing? Are there other things you want to do? Other adventures? I, I did a lot of expedition racing this year. Um, I miss these 24, 30 hour paces. It's such a sprint, so much easier. So I'm probably going to do some more of those next year. Yeah. Doing a big, doing an expedition race is a lot of fun, but it's getting there, racing and getting home is, is it takes a lot out of you. Yeah. I did three this year. So what three did you do? Back. I did uh C to C, which was only three days, but I did it like three days after the winter wild two day winter wildcat. Okay. And then I did uh Ozark and Pharaoh. How did you enjoy Ozark? It was great. The beautiful yeah. paddles. It was tough. We pushed hard. Yeah, it's good to see they're bringing that back for another another round this year. It's coming back. It's one of the one of the spring races. And being that uh Rootstock Racing is taking a year off for Endless Mountains, it's coming back in 2025. They just announced that June 23rd of 2025. That opens up a lot of folks to go race Ozark because some folks had to make a decision between those two races. So Ozark is wide open. Tub, how about you? What are your plans? I don't know. Uh, I got got a great opportunity to race with Bones for um, Endless Mountains uh, with Mary and, and Roy and um, uh, James, and that was that was a bucket list, especially racing with Mary. Uh, I've been wanting to. Um, race with her for a while and so that was really cool to be able to do that <clears throat> so there might be a race or two that i would be fortunate enough to join them next year um but honestly so when jesse and i raced nationals two years ago we sort of looked at each other and said you know i wonder if we if we get the right third person you know what what could we do and i was really really pla- pleased and and, and um, grateful that we had a great showing and that we were able to, you know, I, I keep telling people that I've never been so happy to get second place. Uh, it, was a, it was a really challenging field. Um, and I, I felt like we performed, you know, almost as good as we could have performed. Um, and so 
yeah, I, I don't really know what's next. I, I haven't thought that far ahead. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with you that the uh, challenging field, Ben racing is, is such a such a strong dominating season that anybody who's coming in second to them really is is, is a champion too, right? Sometimes it's 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 hard to to get ahead of a team as strong as that. And I think that you should be proud of the the the, the race that you ran this year and, and the race season that you've all had, right? I've I've had the chance, the honor of racing alongside you and seeing you in different races. And I think that the two of you are very strong ambassadors for the sport. Amanda, who's overseas right now, if she was here, I'd say the same thing about her, right? She's just completely grown in the sport. And it's great to see that the all of these people who I know love the sport doing so well. And I I think that Jesse Spangler, your answer was, was great. I don't know. It's going to keep racing, right? It's a, there's no there's no grand pronouncements, right? Racers race, and that's what you want to do. Chris, yep. as we wrap this up, I want to give you the final word. You know, once again, carrying the torch for a, a national race is difficult. Having the racers coming in, the planning, the plotting, getting everything ready. What were your final thoughts as you wrap up the, the as you put a dot at the end of the sentence about your nationals directing experience? I guess, first of all, it was, it was an honor just to get asked this little, what feels like a little racing organization hidden away in Vermont, having the privilege of putting this race on for this caliber of racer. I think what it really drove home for me, though, was the quality of the volunteers and the volunteer community we've built up here over the past 20 years. I had more than close to 35 people. Uh, helping out with this course between flagging and setting points and staffing all the TAs and driving U-Hauls and loading paddle bags. And, you know, two of my kids were factored into that as well. And, and actually my daughter got out this year as well. She did those two hard points that I mentioned on the ridge. She did the scouting there with me that day. And it was really awesome to see this group come together and support this race. In terms of what's next, I don't know. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to try to race a little more next year. Maybe not put on a nationals level event next year. There's some other GMRA board members. I think I may let them run the races next year. have it folks episode number 78 of the dark zone adventure racing podcast thank you to jesse tubb jesse spangler chris yeager for coming on to the show a fun listen a fine listen i will sit back here and wait for my snickers sponsorship money to come flowing in alongside mcdonald's and uh, good luck to jesse as his knee repairs itself over time he'll bounce back soon enough fantastic stuff folks thank you for being here as always, feel free to comment and reach out. Brian at ardarkzone.com. We love that you're a listener and we enjoy hearing from you. Be safe and keep racing. Jesse is a friend. Yeah, I know he's been a good friend of mine. Lately something's changed, it ain't hard to define Jesse's got himself a girl and I wanna make her mine And she's watching him with those eyes And she's loving with that body, I just know it And he's holding her in his arms late, late at night Charade. 
that doesn't seem to be a reason to change You know I feel so dirty when they start talking cute I wanna tell her that I love her but the point is probably moot Cause she's watching him with those eyes And she's loving him with that body I just know it <laughs> 